Hello and welcome to Of Poetry Podcast with Han Vanderhart, episode two with the poet Christopher Kemp. Christopher Kemp is the author of the poetry collections, What Though the Field Be Lost, LSU Press 2021, and Late in the Empire of Men, which won the 2015 Levis Prize from Four Way Books and has been reviewed widely, including the New York Times. His scholarly book, Craft Class, The Workshop in American Culture, is forthcoming from Johns Hopkins University Press. Recipient of a Pushcart Prize, National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a Wallace Stegner Fellowship from Stanford University, Kemp's poetry and creative nonfiction have appeared in Best American Poetry, Boston Review, Georgia Review, Gettysburg Review, Kenyon Review, New England Review, The New Republic, and Pan America, among others. Kemp's scholarship appears in American Literary History, English Ameri Literary History, and Modernism Modernity. Kemp holds a PhD in English Literature from the University of Chicago an MFA from Cornell University and teaches in the MFA program at the University of Illinois. Welcome. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you again for having me and, and thank you everybody for listening. Um, before we even get into your poems, I would love to talk about your book's epigraph. Would you like to read it? Yeah, this is from um, the first book of Corinthians, chapter 12, and it's verses 14 to 20. Uh, and this is Paul writing, um, uh, the apostle. He says, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set them, set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But that, but now they are many members, yet but one body. Thank you. I cannot remember the last time I picked up a book of poetry and I saw six verses from the New Testament in the front. Uh, <laughs> so I definitely wanted to talk about this. With yeah. You. yeah, it's a bit of an archaicism, I suppose, in contemporary poetry. Um, I, I, uh, I think Paul is such, you see it in this phrase, he's such a, um, I, I mean, I'm Catholic, so that's informing this a little bit. He's such a um, mystical writer and like there's, you hear it and I kind of stumbled over some of the phrases because his syntax is trying to kind of work through that mysticism. Um, and I, I wanted to, there's so much in book one and two Corinthians that is really um, profound. And, and, you know, normally, you know, when you go to church, the Bible gets reduced down and it gets, you know, reduced to morality or something, but there's a real deep like mystery here. I love this um, passage for the way he's thinking about um, what is really a problem of, um, he's writing about the early church as a body and like how, how can you have one um, spiritual body, political body, whatever social body that's made up of many parts. And this is, to me, it's the problem that a nation confronts is and we're living through it right now. How is a nation like, how, how does a nation hang together at all? It's a mystical thing. Like how do they work? Um, um, so that's kind of the 
I wanted to use this because it kind of announces the main, um, the main question that the book is thinking through in a lot of different ways. Absolutely. I'm, I think it's, it's important for thinking about, well, first of all, how important source texts are for your book, What Though the Field Be Lost, from Milton to the Bible, also the importance of source text in America. Um, and I was thinking about the visible and the invisible, which to me are some of the scariest source texts that we don't know are operating as just kind of the daily, daily fabric of our lives. Um, and that makes me think of cotton, the fabric of our lives. Um, but, uh, but also that it's um, this, this text that is both really biblical and also just very republic, right? Because it, what, it was, you know, it's in the Bible, but isn't it too, it's one of those like fables. Isn't it one of the, I remember reading it in like a Bartlett. Like, no, it wasn't Bartlett. It was another like a fable text, a compendium when I was little. And I realized it's kind of seeped into how I think about America or just, you know, not in a critical way, like, oh, I'm thinking about America this way, but it's just it there. It's a source, like a common text, right? And it was almost startling to see it back in its biblical form at the beginning of your book, because by now it's, you know, it does have this kind of mythic fable kind of feeling to it. But when we're thinking about COVID and how different parts of the country respond and we're thinking about um you know how poetry can think about a nation how poetry can think about a country um it just seems to draw a lot of all those things together in an important way yeah absolutely and i just i don't usually talk about the epigraph so i, I love this question and i was just as i re was reading it i um kind of attuned for the first time to the use of the subjunctive here, like, um, oh. like uh, if the body were an eye, where were the hearing? Like that, that were, um, and to me, the subjunctive is like, um, one uses that to imagine a, a possibility mm -hmm. that it's not yet. And so to your point about um, poetry being related to um, um, social formations, I think it's an important role that poetry fills in imagining what is not yet possible, imagine what could be possible or what has and has not been possible. Um, so I love the way you're thinking about like founding documents and like uh, both visible and visible, invisible. And, um, you know, we are a nation that believes strongly in the word and, and the word shapes who we are. Um, I, I love you were thinking about cotton, and I think I think you stumbled onto a poem that maybe, maybe you have to write. Was like cotton, it was made from cotton, right? And like the fabric of our lives, this thing that was that was uh, harvested by slaves once, and like those documents are made of cotton in a way. And it's like a really the materiality of the paper there is this really rich kind of um, way to think about uh, this history's founding documents. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. I mean, the cotton, I think it's so, it, it's easy to feel like history, like there are parts of history that are overblown. And I think that's how some of the, you know, quote unquote, you hear the term master narratives in English departments a lot. Um, you know, oh, the, the, you know, the master narrative of, you know, however, however it's formulated you know, slavery and the causes of the civil war or cotton and industry. And, um, and then when you go to the source text, it's, it's almost always larger than you expect it to be. Um, you know, the, the Civil War is entirely about the slavery when you get into it, um, like for the 10 years leading up to the Civil War, or um, when, you know, I've, like I told you, I've been kind of binging on Sherman's history and how important the narrative of cotton in the South for, 
for what Sherman was, you know, riding through Georgia and doing like lighting the way by burning, like literally burning bales of cotton, which I can only imagine would go up in the most incredible flames. Um, so it's, it's very interesting that it is symbolic, but it's also history. And it's also got these like materiality that's larger than life in many ways. Yeah, that, that march to the sea is so fascinating, I think, for that reason. It's this, it's this, um, it's very material and it's like economic destruction, but it's so symbolic, this like line he scorches yeah. across Georgia, you know, and like, uh, I've never seen cotton burn, but I, yeah, I imagine like you, it's, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Combustible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, would you like to start us off by reading a poem? Yeah. Do you want me to do National Anthem, the first one? That would be wonderful, thank you. Yeah, so this is the um, proem with which, with which the book opens. It's called National Anthem. If then a country could be saved, may we all be its pulse and schematics. May our flags kneel for us. May nothing rain. May one day mean Tuesday, and may our planes on alert over host and Riyadh whisper love songs to the canyons beneath them. May weddings go on for months. May guns gather bullets back into themselves like fishing line. If a country could be saved, could wave lagoons too be a part of it? Could slot machines? Could a country be lifted like a god? If Modesto comes back, could Saturday night we drive T-birds to the Wolfman? May, may dawn's early light lacquer our faces. May Huck and Jim, May group text, let every coal seam spit back its dead. Let the many of us be one, the one be numerous and mongrel. Imagine, spangled, and may each of our stadiums smolder. May marching bands dazzle and thrall us. Their drums like war, no one will remark. Their winds and brasses forming the tightest of scripts. The seamstress we know, age 13, who dyed the cotton and cut the starlight in the flag Francis Scott hailed was a servant girl, Grace Wisher. May we, in the poem of our country, be such exquisite stitchwork. May synecdoche mean fruited plain, beautiful river. In that country, nuke silos swallow missiles down like hot dogs. In that country, cop cars flip snapples to day laborers. May stars blaze. May landfills flower and hum. May one by one we gather then in the swollen fields of our republic. Above us, the rocket's red glare growing faint. Some praise song swept upon us utterly like a wind. May we, we will say, which will one day become us. Thank you. That is beautiful. Um, and we just talked we just touched on the subjunctive um, and then this language of, of blessing, really, right? The may we. Um, so beautiful. I just love this poem. I Thank just think you. the way it builds and in your language has such a, a glitter to it. Um, in it, the language, the materiality of the flag really jumped out at me this time. Um, and made me think of, I'm reading, I just started The Slaves War by Andrew Ward. Oh, I don't know it, okay. It's very cool. It is um, told through the narratives of 
um, enslaved, formerly enslaved. Um, and it's a civilian history, like he posits that it's civilian history. And it's, it's basically kind of a, not a, not a pastiche, but like a, a, it's a collage of, of narratives put together. And one of the quotes I read last night um, said that there was no star on the flag for a black man. Wow, that's um, yeah, and it's, so it's, it's very fascinating. I got into it via Rhiannon Giddens. I don't know that person either. She is, she was the lead singer of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Okay. Um, and she's a singer musician from North Carolina. Weirdly enough, Giddens is my mother's maiden name okay. and her, her mother's, it's her mother's mother's name. Um, and they're from North Carolina too. And I think, think there's a possibility we're related, but anyways, that's how I ended up. She wrote a song based on this, this book, The Slaves War. And that's how I have to like follow up the source text. So that's why I'm reading that right now. Um, but to get back to your poem, which I've wandered straight away from, um, you know, the, the seamstress we know, age 13, who dyed the cotton and cut the starlight in the flag. Frances Scott hailed was a servant girl, Grace Wisher. I love that you document her name here and you say her name here. Yeah, that was important for me. I wanted to get her in there. It was a black girl who um, made the flag. Um, and it was, it was, I guess, I like, I like to come back to this idea of materiality that you're using. I wanted to kind of, this book, throughout the book, I wanted to kind of show um, that ideology, you know, that the, the Star Spangled Banner is um, not um, separable from the material world um, that, that emerges out of and, and exists in dialogue with um, the way we make a flag, the, the kind mm. of rites and ceremonies we have at these places. Uh, places is kind of material. Um, so they um, wanted this poem to kind of introduce that idea very early is that this, um, you know, it's, it's a, I guess really kind of a, a Marxist thing showing the work undergirding um, mm. art uh, or the kind of, uh, what is like the, the base and superstructure thing. Like col all culture exists, uh, rests upon this base, you know, and I wanted to, in this book a little bit to make that base um, visible. And um, of course for the South, it, it was slaves was the base, um, but yeah. Um, yeah, and it's so, Oh, I'm sorry. You go right ahead. <laughs> I love that quote. There's no star on the flag for a black man. Um, yeah, it, it's powerful and powerful. Like, um, I mean, it just kind of crystallizes uh, so much into a single image, you know, mm -hmm. in the way that Pound talked about the image working like that. And, um, yeah, really nice. And that it was a black girl who who made, like, made the flag because I didn't realize that reading the poem, but I was, you know, I was there thinking about gender and how important it is, you know, especially in an archive sense and an art sense that we name and document the people we're speaking about. And, um, you know, Eula Biss has said one of her regrets with Notes from No Man's Land is that she erased a lot of the names, which she did in the first edition of the, um, the Black men who were lynched. And so like, that was something she said, I, should I shouldn't have erased them, I should have put them in. So this work of, of naming the names. And when you see, you know, like 1830 censuses or 1860 censuses and from the United States, and, you know, you see that it is the slaveholders who are named and it is the enslaved who are not named, um, they are numbers, right? You get their age, you get, you get the, the scantest detail. And so just the politics and the power of naming, I think is, is just vital and important. Right. 
Did was did Biss change that in subsequent editions or no? She wrote, so I think what she ended up doing was they reissued the first edition. They did a reissue and she wrote like a new preface. Um, but okay. it, yeah, there's a piece, I think it's on LitHub that she wrote too about it. Interesting, mm -hmm. I teach that essay quite a bit. Um, and that's never come up though. Um, that's a, I'm, I'm glad to know that. I, I didn't know she had responded to that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think being open to revising yourself and your right. methodologies and right. how you've worked in the past. Yeah. I love that the, this, um, the servant girl's name is Grace Wisher too, which is like mm. parts of that. This, this, um, Mm. The idea of grace is a big one in the book, um, but yeah. this poem, you see the idea of wishing and wanting to say, yes. so, uh, wanting to claim a kind of larger identity that is in many ways um, impossible or, or problematic. Um, it's just, it's just, uh, I had to get the name in there, not only <laughs> because of all the, all the resonances that are there. Yes, it's a beautiful name. It really is. Um, yeah. You know, the, I would think about source text and the way you work. Um, just so beautifully and fluidly with many um, texts at the same time and the overlay, um, the line, may dawn's early light lacquer our faces, remind me so much of Milton's, you know, hail holy light and Milton's just obsessed with light in Paradise Lost. Um, so it's, it was so interesting to have, um, you know, the literally the national anthem, Milton also there and the fact that like your book engages uh, Milton was present, in, you know, present in America in a really interesting way as a text. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't, I, my familiarity with how he was present was uh, during the Civil War when everything mm -hmm. Paradise Lost and how um, the book kind of gets to, gets into this, that uh, all kinds of people on both North and South were thinking about, you know, I'm sure you know this, thinking about Satan's um, secession from heaven uh, in relationship to the South secession and, and on both North and South for the North, obviously it was, it was a satanic um, gesture, but for the South, it was as Milton kind of saw it, this defiant heroic resistance to tyranny. Um, so like in all kinds of stuff, like court documents, even newspapers, people's letters, soldiers' letters, you see like uh, Satan coming up and they're clearly thinking about the Satan of paradise lost, you know, um, it's not, not in the Bible, um, right? It's not the Satan falling from heaven is not in the Bible, um, or am I wrong? Um, I would have to, isn't it? I mean, there's, you know, the morning star, the language of the morning star that falls. Is isn't that? I don't what? know. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a bad Protestant this I'm morning. Church. I gotta go to church after this, yeah. Um, that's the great thing about, you know, poetry and studying. You're always double checking your sources and always right. have to look things up. I kind of, the life of reference is a good life. Yeah. Um, I, I really like that we've gone to, I wasn't quite expecting to go yet to Milton, but it makes complete sense um, considering the title of your book, What Though the Field Be Lost, and that coming from, you know, Satan's, first speech in, you know, to Beelzebub in Paradise Lost book one, I was on a trip with Jessica Cueo recently. And I said to her, you know, what is a poetry title you are really, really jealous of? And she, she couldn't actually, she's just a generous heart and she couldn't think of one. And I was like, oh, it's what those of you be lost. I'm so, <laughs> I was like, I'm so jealous. Oh. Gorgeous title. Um, just beautiful. Oh whether you recognize the Milton or not, right? Um, and it, 
I'm going to read just a, a few verses from book one, right? This is, this is Satan speaking. What though the field be lost, all is not lost. The unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate, and courage never to submit or yield. And what is else not to be overcome? That glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me to bow and sue for grace with suppliant me and deify his power. It's just incredible. And I think for me, when I think about the actual, you know, the fact that the South could identify in any way with Satan, the fallen, fallen from heaven, he's like burning in a pit. He's not in, you know, he's in not light, but visible darkness, right? In pain, there are all the, all the, you know, demons, the fallen angels are prostrate on this burning late, you know, they're in the worst pain they've ever been. And he's like, what though the field be lost, all is not lost. And that you could identify with like him at his worst or like knowing that there's the fall, like Satan and his crew don't really recover. You know, they do take some dominion up, right? Um, of earth, I guess that's a big deal, but, uh, <laughs> but still like when I think about the actual monuments of the civil war, the flesh monuments, the living monuments, the white Southern attitudes, um, you know, the stretches to the way we vote and school districts and gerrymandering and um, that there are things that you can hold on to, right, that are not land like the, or power per se, the unconquerable will and study of revenge and mortal hate and courage never to submit or yield. It's, it's eerie hearing that after January 6th, you know, and after yeah. like 2016, like that phrase, never to submit. And um, uh, I mean, what, what one of the first things Satan does is build in hell. He builds this kind of Greek Greco-Roman palace. And, and one of the first things the South did after the war was build statues, monuments, you know, many of which are uh, Greco-Roman inspired. Um, so it's, it's, it's uh, I, I'm sure today no one's thinking of Milton in that context because, uh, if, if I could be frank, everybody's idiots, but um, I you know, believe in the, that January 6th stuff. Um, but it so continues to resonate, I think. Um, oh, wow. I had never, I had never thought, I, you know, I've all the like the minor research I've done in like Greek revivalism in the South that I'm just getting really into. I'm problematically attracted to Southern estates. It's very messed up, but they're so yeah. beautiful. <laughs> but I'd never like that to Milton's pandemonium in, you know, I had never, that's so cool to think about. And now I, you know, I think of that classic um, illustration, right? Which is Satan on his throne, sitting on that like giant sphere. And it is, it absolutely is, you know, Greco-Roman. I hadn't thought about that. So that's so cool you bring that up. Uh, um, yeah, those, those, those plantations and, and the monuments. Mm. And, architecture was so important to uh, the South in this country. It was, uh, for a long time, one of the main ways they rebelled. Um, um, I'm trying to think, like, you didn't see it really in, in so much literature until, like, somebody like, you know, Alan Tate or something. But in, in architecture, you saw it, you know? You saw yeah. this kind of spirit refused to submit. Um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, just the kind of, and, and I think that the, decay of those mansions and the decay and, and the endurance of the statues that's mm. it's just like i mean i guess back to the point of materiality in the way these these things hold ideas you know yeah. um, in, in the way williams talked about you know um, yeah 
the um the the w Windsor runes I don't know that um those are in Mississippi um they are incredible okay but it was a it was the largest um it was the largest Greek revivalism um piece of architecture like house in the state it was one of the largest plantations and it burned in 1890 by mistake um, but it was huge and it's got a huge history in terms of you know the north and the south using it during the war um, and Mark Twain like it's got this um, it basically had an observatory like cupola on top and so you know Mark Twain observed the Mississippi River like going by because you know, from the top and it was so impressive and so much money um, and the columns still stand. Wow. Um, and I think it was the stairways and the columns, capitals, and the balustrades that were ordered in from St. Louis. They were like fired, like forged there. And so they survived the fire. Um, but it's so eerie and interesting. And I think, I think it comes up in Sally Mann's Deep South. Okay. Um, I think there are pictures there and Eudora Welty photographed it. And I've been a little, it's one of my summer obsessions, <laughs> for, right. like uh, the ruins of Windsor, but the fact that they named it Windsor too, right? I mean, right, totally. let's name it after a palace founded by William the Conqueror. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know he founded that, that palace. Um, uh, and you're writing about that, right? Um, or are you, not, not those ruins in particular? Yeah, I was writing a little bit on the runes um, and in my poetry, and then I've been doing some work on Confederate monuments um, in in my essays, um, and those tend to be more kind of family focused. Um, but I think I've just finally decided that, oh well, this is the stuff. You know, this is what I'm doing right now because I thought I was with what become light. I was done, and I was like, okay, I'm done. I did my book. I'm done talking about the South, but it's really really hard to extract yourself from it, um, and impossible, you know. Um, I wanted to read this, a line from a Goodreads review that was critical, but highlighted for me something that I adore about your book. And this, this reader wrote, I found the juxtaposition of the Civil War and Hyundai's, Dubai, Sirius, the Kiwanis Club, Sheets's, Fanta, and other things from other eras distracting. And this goes into two questions for me, which is one that you were recently in conversation with Neil Monroe at the Oxford Brooks University Poetry Center and the language of stitching came up regarding your poetry's form. And I love that it did because it's so apt for the work you do in what the other field be lost. And it's also often gendered language, um, stitching and fabric and um, the kind of the textile arts. And, and I say this as someone with a 17th century background. So I'm mostly talking about how the metaphors have been used, you know, coming from that long. So in other words, I'm not saying like in contemporary work, I'm saying it's got this, this tradition, right? In, right, right. Um, in literature. And so thinking about the stitching, think about like, I do want poems with Fanta and boom, boom sauce. Like I do, and, and the, you know, actor who's, who's playing Sherman and also all the evocations of like war when you're standing on an actual battlefield, right? Um, so I thought about 
bewilderment, the idea of the bewilderment, and I'm using Fanny Howell's use of it here. And I was wondering if you thought that bewilderment is necessary, is a kind of a necessary thing to like have in your readerly store when you're reading What Though the Field Be Lost. Yeah, totally. I don't, I don't know um, the Fanny Howell, uh, the way she conceptualized. Oh. Go ahead, do you, you want to, is it, can you gloss it briefly or? Um, it's from her essay, Bewilderment. And she's basically talking about what a, a like a gift bewilderment is. Um, so it's a very positive use and it's very, you know, she's into this kind of circular reading. You get kind of a gyre spiraling kind of, uh, you know, there's like, no, there's a little Yates there, I think. Oh, there must be, surely. <laughs> it's it's how. Um, but yeah, in a, in a positive sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, absolutely. I, I think I think of it as wonder um, or this like um, bafflement before the world. Um, and um, I think wonder and awe to me, I mean, I mean, Catholics believe this is one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us is wonder and awe at like, um, how, how things work, why things work a certain way at the beauty of the natural world. Um, um, so yeah, and this, this kind of, um, I think in a poem, um, uh, what is, what's the poem that has Fanta and Boom Boom Sauce? Now I'm blanking. Um, uh, Remembrance Day or? Uh, it is, oh, Beach Party Steak Fry. Right? Oh yes. Um, Sorry, I couldn't remember my own <laughs> word. Um, the kind of um, juxtaposition at Gettysburg of the reverent and the trash, you know? Um, uh, it's, it's, the battlefield itself is just simply wondrous, including the Confederate monuments there, which are very beautiful and very striking rhetorically, even though they, you know, enshrine a horrible cause. And, uh, that to me was the kind of uh, the first time we we arrived in Gettysburg. We kind of looked out over where Pickett's Charge took place, and it was it was bewilderment. It was wonder to stand mm. there. And um, I think uh, your book, What Pecan Light, is a is a little bit about how land holds history, you know. Um, and I've, I've never felt that more powerfully than at Gettysburg, standing there, um, where you know these men. Um, I've said this before, these men would have died for an idea. I couldn't have done that. Like, um, so mm -hmm. that, that was truly wondrous. And it's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful place naturally too. Um, so totally this book originated, I think in bewilderment. I like that term a lot. So I think of, you know, thinking about the land and the uses. And I mean, I know, I know so many people, I live near um, the Manassas battlefields for a while. And I had so many friends who'd go and walk their dogs there. And, you know, it's like, oh, Sunday, let's go take a walk there. And um, that, you know, the battlefields are now recreational spaces and, you know, the return of fields to being fields. And I think that's so interesting because there can be a sense that even though they're preserved spaces, there can be a sense that we can move past it or we use them for other things now or, and then I think of something like Sally Mann's um, battlefield photographs that are just so starkly dark um, here in Tetum. I mean, I don't even like to look at them. Like they're just so, so dark, so gloomy. And, you know, from her perspective, like the kind of, um, and, and Hilton else says that um, Sally Mann um, wants to be a Faulkner 
love the sound. Like she wants to, like there's like almost a kind of mythology that she brings with her to looking at the South. Um, and I think that's a good critical point. I really do. And I also really love Nan's work. Um, but there is like the framework like, that she cannot look at the battlefield without like this dark, this just overwhelming darkness, yeah. um, which is really interesting and I think important yeah. to bringing even to our dog walks or, <laughs> you right? know. Yeah. I, I, I seldom, I, I like that in the photographs, like I, I seldom felt a darkness there. I seldom felt like mm. the violence. I just felt a kind of, um, brooding presence you yeah. know like, even though of course it was so violent um but mm. um, yeah it, it's it's um at gettysburg i think every every uh, civil war battlefield they preserve the landscape exactly as it would have looked mm. so it's it's you can tell it's very carefully manicured it's kind of like uh, oh, certain copses of trees are fenced off yeah it's very like aestheticized and preserved and curated i guess is the word i want um so, and you know, you can stand where Pickett's Charge ended and you can see a McDonald's, you can see a KFC. And um, so it's hard to, to me to feel the violence, um, but I do feel like the kind of depth of history there and the, mm. this, this presence, I guess. I, I sound very like um, California, -y, I guess, but. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, and I just think the, um, the literal darkness of Sally Mann's photographs yeah, yeah. to that, um, but it, it is very palpable. I mean, it's very, it, it also, of course, for me, reads like a very spiritual darkness too. Right. Um, and they are weird spaces because you'll see, um, yeah, I'm a big runner and their, their battlefields are fabulous yeah. for running because there's no traffic there or everybody drives through very slowly. And um, it's just miles and miles of, of you know, preserved grounds basically. Um, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a museum. The, the battlefield is like mm. a museum in itself, but it's also like, um, we, we live that history, whether it's like the, you know, the trucks that come through with Confederate flags or the RV, yeah. huge RVs that have like Confederate yeah. flags or something, or like, um, I was running one morning and um, I don't know, I think some army unit must've come up from DC or something. It was like pre-dawn, it was still dark. And there was like, a hundred guys in like army fatigues, just like training and running and doing push-ups and stuff. It was so weird. I thought like, am I so still weird? Dreaming? Like uh, they just kind of emerged out of the mist on the battlefield. It was like bizarre. And I'm like, wow, here for a purpose. Like you could train mm -hmm. anywhere, but like, what does it mean to for the army to do that at Gettysburg? Like, I'm sure it was some like you know, I don't know if it was the Marines or whatever, but it was some unit, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, it's. I mean, I'm kind of an infant reader of the Civil War in America. I've done a lot more with the British Civil War. Um, so I'm kind of checking things in with my brother, who's a Civil War buff when I have questions, but he refuses to tell me whether he thinks Sherman was hot. Um, <laughs> but one of the things, I mean, the fact that, you know, you don't realize how maybe you don't as like a casual, just everyday person, if you're not a specialist in it, but you know, that the armies were so intermixed in that, you know, the day Lee resigns from the United States Army, he takes up command of the Confederate, you know, Confederate Army, that there's this, like, this movement and this transition. And um, I think of that, and it, it's interesting that, you know, there were, there were lots of Southerners in the Nor Northern Army. It wasn't, you know, in the Federal Army, in the United States Army. It wasn't just that there's this separate, it's not this stark separation. It wasn't the North and the South. It's actually very intermixed. It actually is the cliche of like brother fighting brother. 
Um, Something I think um, the, the Jeff Shara books and the Michael Shara books, like the Killer Angels, um, you know, they're 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 kind of they're pop pop historical fiction, but something they do really well is that sense of like, um, you know, before Gettysburg, um, Hancock knows that across the lines is Longstreet, who he fought with in Mexico in back in the United States Army, you know, pre-Civil War. And in that book, like in the Killer Angels, he thinks back to the last night they were together in California before um, Longstreet was leaving to join the Southern Army. You know, it's and it's like it's back to this idea of they one body yet multiple at the same time. You know, mm -hmm. um, I always love that kind of nostalgia um, for the time when they were friends, not enemies. You know. Um, yeah, um, I think uh, of the lines from Remembrance Day um, that your poem closes. Tecumseh Sherman drinks high life at a picnic table. He is a roofer from Knoxville. And I just love those lines. Um, and I think, you know, talking, thinking about Faulknerian time and thinking about reenactments and to be in a single physical geographical space that has been used multiple ways and multiple times. And you just end up being kind of mixed. Like that time is, is mixed in the sense of Faulkner's the past is never dead. It's not even past. Right? Yeah. yeah. Is it an Absalom? Absalom where he talks about, um, he says uh, for like Southern boys, it is always the third day at Gettysburg. It's always, this is like, sorry, it's always two o'clock on the third day. It has not happened yet. Um, everything is still, uh, in, I, I'm getting, I'm mangling it. Is that Absalom, Absalom? Uh, I think, it is. I'm terrible at quoting well. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, that's so interesting. It's it's interesting that you know, as a a Southern kid who was raised by two parents from Louisiana, and when I say raised, I was homeschooled K through twelve, so all of my education came through a very specific lens. Uh, you know, Sherman was a devil. Um, Lee, General Lee, was a Southern gentleman. You know, we went to Gettysburg and we go to the gift shop and we get the gray caps and we get the CSA belt buckles and like, you know, we pose on the wall. <laughs> it's like this pilgrimage, like, you know, for like Southern families to go and be like, whoa, this great tragedy. Um, so it's, it's wild doing readings now and being like, oh, actually Sherman's like a personal hero. Um, <laughs> or, or just like revisiting and how people use these spaces in different ways. Yeah. Um, which your poetry app, like, kind of, I think, in, in the best way, kind of goes for the, the jugular for. <laughs> um, you know, whether it gets it is another question. But I think, yeah, um, I, I think I, I, it's very much a pilgrimage for Southerners, Gettysburg. And I would I would bet that the majority of tourists there are Southerners, um, you know, some some very some very reverent, but some defiant. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm wondering now if I can't believe that the gift shop still sells <laughs> the gray caps and the CSA stuff. Um, <laughs> that, when, that's a question. When I was there, they were having they were I was talking to some of the guides and I was like, are they going to take down any of these Confederate statues? And um, they don't they don't think about that at all, because to them, it's a museum, um, those mm. grounds, uh, which I think is fair. Um, but it was. Yeah. Uh, they are alert in other ways to kind of what's happening in the culture. Yeah. And it's so different, right? It's, it is different than a statue out in front of our courthouse that everyone uses. Um, 
which is one of the statues that came down in Durham. Oh, was really? a, a monument to Confederate soldiers okay. right in front of the Dur Durham courthouse. Wow. Um, yeah. So those are, those are the, you know, in our public and our, our civic and our judicial spaces, those are, those are the ones I would like to see pulled down yesterday. Right. Sure. My child would say, eat them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I found that Faulkner quote. Um, oh. I don't want to monopolize your time. No, but please. Not too long. Um, he says, for every Southern boy 14 years old, not once, but whenever he wants it, there is the instant when it's still not yet two o'clock on that July afternoon in 1863. The brigades are in position behind the rail fence. The guns are laid and ready in the woods and the furled flags are already loosened to break out. And Pickett himself with his long oiled ringlets and his hat in one hand, probably, and his sword in the other, looking up the hill, waiting for Longstreet to give the word, and it's all in the balance. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't even begun yet. It not only hasn't begun yet, but there is still time for it not to begin against that position and those circumstances. Um, Mm. I always love that quote for just like you, you see in that, I think like Faulknerian time, like you're talking about, but also just like how close we came to a very different Gettysburg, a very different third day at Gettysburg and a very different war and a very different country maybe, you know, um, uh, it's just kind of, and it's something I realized when I was standing behind those walls at Gettysburg, like these men were fighting sometimes fist to fist, you know, and, um, behind that was New York. Um, so it was very yeah. close to like a totally different war. And I love this Wow. for that and this like cyclical time that you see here. This this enduring return, this eternal return, I guess, of that mm -hmm. moment. That's a beautiful quote. Thank you for reading that. Yeah, um, I, I think of all the ghosts in Absalom, Absalom, that it's just this constant, like that Quentin Compson feels so ghostly, so plagued by ghosts. Um, but there's also, you know, that quote, and, and this is what I love about Faulkner, it, he really goes after the romanticism of the white South and the like possibility, um, but also like never, never lets um, white Southerners off the hook for their violence ever. Um, and that's where the ghosts come from, right? Um, so I think at Faulkner's maybe, I don't know, maybe he's a little underrated right now. Not as a, we consider him a classic great, but in terms of actually being read and engaged, I haven't read as much about that. Yeah, um, um, I, I'm sure his reputation is not good right now, uh, or not, <laughs> not what it once was right now, but I love what you're talking about, like that kind of doubleness of his thinking, the way he can he can make you feel the romance of the lost mm -hmm. cause. And I, I, I feel in that passage, um, but he also, uh, he feels very dark to me to get back to that, mm -hmm. that term and he feels very much to know uh, to indict the south in a lot of ways um, and it's interesting too at the level of form both you know to link faulkner and you to think about how a sentence works and that faulkner it has to carry so many things and go on so long and it's so weighty and i said to someone like i don't think i could read another Faulkner title like I just having read one and they said oh no I have never done that no back-to-back -back Faulkners you know yeah. um versus your sentences right that have to be so 
agile that have to be so fast so that like can move and shift and I think I love knowing that you're a runner too um that it's there is not a linearity that's like a causal linearity but a linking of of uh, multiplicity and a linking of things and it does have this kind of running thought in your work um and I love you know the way you use ampersands and um I know there was a phrase. Oh, transphysical unity that came up in your conversation with Neil Monroe. I love that. I don't think I'm quite smart enough for it. Um. I think that was his <laughs> phrase because it's just too smart for me too. I was like, oh, that's good. Write that down. <laughs> um, in closing, because um, I'm watching the time for us and trying to respect each other's time. The I was thinking of the language of we use in your book. And it's a pronoun that I have a bit of a fraught relationship with in what pecan light. Like I know I'm doing it and I don't really love that I'm doing it. Um, and it's, it personally, it's one of the pronouns I'm trying to avoid right now, just to have a little break. Uh, Laylee Long Soldier on the Commonplace podcast called it, I believe it was a commonplace. It was either that or between the covers, which I also love with David Neiman. Um, called it the pronoun of rude inclusion. And I'd love to hear in closing your thoughts on the virtues and maybe the vices of the pronoun we and the kind of work you can do with it, but also the limits. And, you know, perhaps these limits are more gainful than restrictive. Yeah, uh, I like that, uh, like productive limitations. Um, uh, I have to say, I don't like, like thinking about it as a rude inclusion. <laughs> You know, it's very hip right now to make sweeping generalizations about a single mm. word. I think mm -hmm. a single word is, can mean many things and can be deployed in multiple ways and words are what we make of them. Um, and that said, I, I understand the point that, that, that Long Soldier's making, um, but that's a problem that I think this book is trying to think through. It wants a week and I think I think uh, even somebody like Laylee's Long Soldier, that work is very much invested in claiming a we. Um, it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not the we that I claim, and it's not, a, it's, not it's differently focused. Um, mm -hmm. But you, I don't think any kind of social or cultural movement can operate without claiming a kind of collective identity. Um, uh, otherwise you have kind of an atomism of individuals um, and, and that's how do you have poetry in that context? You have, you have journaling. Um, but I think uh, what I'm trying to think through is like, is um, what can be productive about claiming a, a national we or a we, um, a we that is experiencing uh, virtuous and vicious at the same time. And I'm thinking mm -hmm. about the way the nation, for example, is a, a way to kind of resist something like, um, transnational or global capitalism, something like tariffs to me are, are a kind of productive way to resist uh, money and resist the kind of control that capitalism exerts. So a nation is not a bad thing. A nation is what its citizens and what its, its powers that be make it. And so, um, yeah, I'm just trying to kind of, um, I personally want to believe in a we. I want to kind of claim a collective identity. I find great power in that. I believe in that, but I also know that it is insidious in many ways. And it, it, 
in claiming a collective identity, something is always left out or many people are always left out. And, um, I don't think there's an easy answer to this. And that's what, what I, I'm drawn to it. Um, there's no kind of moralizing or ethical um, easiness. It's, it's something we have to wrestle with and live through yeah. on a case-by-case -case basis and on with think about deeply. Um, and that's why I kind of resist the kind of um, dismissal of we. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I think of, you know, going back to that quote, no star on the flag for a black man, like who, who are the stars for, right? Um, and that we poets do our best to work, you know, with language very specifically and just, you know, thinking about who the we is in any text is, is very good readerly work to be doing. Um, sometimes I've had to ask myself, like, is this a white we? Like, is this, like, who is, and in my text is also often the family, um, but what it means to be able to include others. And what I love about what though the field be lost, one of the many things is this, um, you know, the, the gesture that moves into the may, that moves into the subjunctive, that thinks about possibility, you know, Dickinson's dwell in possibility, um, that, you know, sometimes we shut our options down so quickly or we want to burn an institution or we want to raise the ground. And, you know, that, that, that needs to be done sometimes too, but also thinking about how we can build together, how we can move forward together. Um, and your poetry has that incredible, I think, generosity um, and these kind of wide open arms to lots of different people to lots of different speech acts to, I mean, just the objects in your poems um, and I think that's what I hope readers really experience when they pick up your book, um, you know, is having pickets charged somewhere near Boom Boom Sauce. <laughs> it's, all, it's all of that, right? Um, thank you so much, Chris, for being here today. Would you like to close us with a poem? Yeah, I just want to thank you too for your excellent questions and this this um, really generous conversation. I am touched and um, humbled by the way you thought about the book and you're helping me see it in new lights. So even now, like thinking about we as a speech act, which is of course that's right, but it's something I hadn't quite conceptualized in that way. But yeah, the book starts with envisioning a we and it wants to work towards that by the end. Um, and it, uh, I don't think it really settles on like, we can say we, but um, it thinks through that, but it wants to kind of, yeah, I love, I love that speech ad. So anyway, thank you. Good. Um, I, I've had so much fun. Um, maybe I'll read just a little bit. Um, let me see, let me pull up my PDF, sorry. Uh, I might read a little bit from the Union Forever. I don't usually read from that. So I'll just maybe like excerpt a few sections if that's okay. Um, this is the long poem at the center of the book. Um, and, uh, my wife and I got married in Gettysburg and we got married on the steps of um, this building at Gettysburg College, which was a Civil War hospital. And, I mean, basically every building in Gettysburg was a city was a Civil War hospital, but um, this was an actual one. Um, so this is, this is about that marriage and thinking about putting that union against the union of the country. Um, and um, Lowell basically does the same thing and for the union dead. Um, so I'm, I'm just ripping off him basically. Um, let me see. I guess I'll read the, la the last um, one, two, three sections of this. Um, and this is, uh, 
in the poem, we've come back from the honeymoon. Uh, we're about to move away from Gettysburg. And um, it's thinking about the monuments there, the Confederate monuments, the kind of um, seductive rhetoric of them and the way they use this rhetoric to conceal evil uh, and the way evil is veiled over in, in beauty. Um, so this is just the last couple sections and it ends, um, the poem ends, it's a long poem, it ends with a quote and I'll just end with that. Um, so this is, this is my language first though. It was, we admitted though, the South statuary, West Confederate Pennsylvania, the 21st century we most admired. Art as compensation, grace, spring rainstorms sweeping the Delta. In Deleuze, Louisiana monument, St. Barbara, of armorers and firemen, artillery, lifts true to her patronage a flaming mortar shell in her upturned palm. Plays in the other the trumpet, fluted, gold of resurrection. The dead man at her feet, a gunner in New Orleans artillery. Shoelaces ragged, imagine how desperately they believe. Before we raise the thing, place your hand in the gunner's palm. It is open, oversized like his feet, the sculptor's trademark. You can touch it. But mainly I miss the cows. On Culp's Hill evenings, you can see them feeding in their pasture. The shadows will lengthen, some last pressed thinness of light laying itself on the switchgrass. The calves just born will wobble behind you. For them, the grass, the golden wave rising in its distances, Whitman's hair of graves, that grass is only the grass. Good cows, I could love us that faithfully. They are sometimes so close you can hear them breathing. And then this is the quote. The time may vary a few months or even a few decades, but the job will be settled and that all right too. I am in this matter like St. Paul's charity, ready to bear, believe, hope and endure all things for the cause. Knowing if we do, we also, like charity, shall never fail. This has been a most egotistical letter. That's, that's just a uh, quote from a, a Union soldier, William Wheeler, who was a soldier from New York writing, uh, this is after Gettysburg, um, writing home to his family. Um, but yeah, that's how that poem ends. Thank you for that. Thank you, Chris, it's beautiful. And I encourage listeners to find the Union Forever online and listen to it. And there will be links on our podcast page as well. So now's the time to say thank you for listening to Of Poetry Podcast, episode two with the poet Christopher Kemp. To read more of Christopher Kemp's work, visit ChristopherKemp.com. To subscribe and rate Of Poetry Podcast, visit Apple Podcasts. The show will soon be available on other podcast hosting venues.